but I'm glad to be in the house of the Lord today. I think of David, who in the psalm said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And um, would challenge you to even think about this morning, what brought you out today? What brought you here today? Um, I'm not necessarily thrilled to be standing up here. Um, I think there's always some nerves that come with public speaking. And so my prayer this morning is that you get something out of this. Um, I think that comes with two parts. One part that comes with uh, how well I've done at, um, at studying and looking through this lesson or this message that I've been given. And then I think the other part comes through you being intentional about seeking to get something out of today. And so um, my ask would be that you um, are intentional about seeking to get something out of God's work today. And uh, if you get anything out of this, it won't be because of my speaking skills. It will be because of the power of the Word of God. We're going to um, start off in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 14. And as you turn there, kind of just a thought to um, begin to put some framework around what we're going to be speaking about this morning. And that thought is kind of the question of, have you ever said, maybe in relation to some uh, public news of some public figure that's done something wrong, have you ever said, I would never do that? Or perhaps maybe in, um, in regards to even in a local church setting where somebody's um, fallen into sin or somebody has um, given into some temptation that's become public and you've said, I would never do that. Or maybe in our cultural Christianity, um, we wouldn't outwardly say that because after all scripture says um, if any man think he stands take heed lest he fall and so to be spiritual we wouldn't outwardly say that but inside mentally we say within ourselves oh I would never do that today's portion of scripture is going to kind of challenge that way of thinking here in Mark chapter 14 we're going to pick up in verse 26, it says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And of course, the, um, the context here, the background here, is they've just, Jesus, has, Jesus and his disciples have just finished the um, f- first Lord's Supper, the initiation of the Lord's Supper. And of course, this is on the eve of Christ going to the cross of Calvary on the, on the eve of the crucifixion. And so it says, when they had sung a hymn and they went out into the Mount of Olives, and Jesus saith unto them, talking to his disciples, all ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before thee into Galilee. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. But he spoke the more vehemently, If I shall die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise, also said they all. To kind of put some framework around this, I'm going to start with an analogy. And um, analogies kind of help take things that we're familiar with in this world and begin to help us frame a thought around this. And the thing about analogies is they are helpful in giving us a framework within our minds. Uh, But of course, no analogy perfectly 
captures um, the fullness of Scripture. But this analogy says, did you know that it is possible to find hypocrisy in any forest? In any great forest, you will find many huge trees. They tower above the other trees, and they appear to be very, the very picture of strength and maturity. Still, experienced loggers sometimes will not even bother to cut down these huge trees. They look at them. To look at them, one would think this makes no sense. After all, the big tree must have two or three times the wood that a smaller tree around it would have. But to the experienced logger, the reason is simple. Huge trees are often rotten on the inside. They are the trees that are often blown over in a strong windstorm because while they appear to be the picture of strength, their hollowness makes them very weak. A lot of Christians are like those big trees in the forest. We like to think that we've made great strides in our walk of faith. And maybe even in our life, we've had periods of great growth. But by and by, the, the mindset that I have arrived or that I'm good has led to perhaps neglecting the daily time with the Lord. And over time, things inside begin to rot. And we often wouldn't want to admit it, but often we judge our lives by measuring ourselves against the lives of others, or at least what we can see from the lives of others. And um, you, know, you know it's true, because if you're like me, I do it and you do it. Um, we look at others and we see the things they do, the places they go the things they may say. And we look at them and we say, I would never do that. Yeah, we would not maybe own up to it, but we think there is something special about us. We often act as if we really believe that we are the true standard of faith. The problem with most of us, however, is this. We, like the trees mentioned in this illustration, can become rotten on the inside. We are just not what we think we are. We don't live the kind of lives we think we do. In truth, we often spend our days deceiving ourselves and trying to deceive those around us. In this passage today, Jesus is going to deal with his disciples who themselves, who thought of themselves as big trees in the Christian forest. If you had asked any of them, they would have told you, particularly on this night, that they were sold out for Christ. They would remind you how they had left everything to follow him. And, and they had. They left their careers, their upbringings to follow him. They would tell you, as they told Jesus this night, that they would never fail him or forsake him. And Jesus, on the other hand, is about to reveal to them the truth about themselves and about their fickle hearts. Many of you know, but Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And he finishes that with who can know it. I can't even trust my own heart. These verses here, these five short verses, give us a small taste of the conversation that Jesus had with his men 
as he walked from Jerusalem down the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's during this conversation that Jesus revealed to his disciples and his men that they would all forsake him before the night was over. It was also during this conversation that his men make adamant declarations that they would never do something like that. And if you had come to any of these men that night and asked them, do you think you will fail the Lord? It seems from the context of the scripture that they would have looked at you and said, never, it's not happening. But they were about to learn the truth that never wasn't as long as they thought it was. And so these verses remind us that um, self-righteousness, hypocrisy, spiritual failure are possible for any of us. These verses teach us that we should live every day with an honest understanding of our true spiritual condition. These verses teach us that we should say that we should never say never. But instead, as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 10, it's but by the grace of God I am what I am. So we're going to notice the truths contained here in this text. Um, let's pray here and then we'll start to unpack some of this. Father God, we come before you this morning, thankful to be in your house, thankful to have this body to come and meet with and brothers and sisters in, in your Lord, and Father, happy to be spending this Lord's Day here in this place. Father, we pray for clarity as the word of God is preached this morning to um, present what's before in this passage. And Father, we pray that the Spirit of God might be here and that the Spirit of God might just take the Word of God and, and apply it where, um, where you see fit. And God, we pray that the uh, will of men this morning might not hinder the work of God. And we ask these things in your name, Jesus' name. Amen. As we unpack this um, passage, there's really kind of three main point, three things that we're going to look at. We're going to look at some prophecy. There's some prophecy that's spoken about in this, in this passage. We're going to look at some promises. There's a couple promises that we also find within this passage. And then we're going to look at um, pronouncements. As we begin to unpack this, we're going to first look at these prophecies. As... Um, as we kind of alluded to earlier, Jesus and his disciples are on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. If you know, and many of you do know the context and the events following this, but when they arrive there, Jesus will pray the great prayer that's found in John 17, where he says, we ask the Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And we find Jesus submitting to the will of the Father. We find there in the Garden of Gethsemane him sweating as if it were great drops of blood as his physical body begins to feel the stressor of taking on the sin of the world. That's the context. That's the mindset that Jesus is in this night. Later, he will be arrested and carried away for his trial. And so it's en route to the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus has some things to say to his men, some of the very last things that he's going to communicate with them prior to his crucifixion. And here in verse 27, we see, as Jesus communicates to them, we see a prophecy of a fall. In verse it says, and Jesus said unto them, all ye shall be offended 
because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. Jesus tells them, all of you will be offended because of me this night. That word offended there, it means to make Clearly telling his men that they would stumble and fall because of him that night. This word offended is where in our modern English we get the word scandal. The Lord's disciples would be scandalized by the things that would happen to Jesus that night. And... Um, while in this moment, maybe they didn't understand all the events that were leading up to it, although multiple times in Christ's earthly ministry, he's preparing them for this point and communicating to them that this is where it's leading to. Um, if you think about the events that are going to follow and the, and the crucifixion, Jews, um, Jews hated the crucifixion. They thought it was dirty. There's even some ceremonial things about how quickly, quickly they wanted um, men off the cross because of the Passover that was coming up. And Jews did not want to be associated with crucifixion, whether for political reasons or whether for religious reasons. And they would be offended or scandalized or wanted to distance themselves from somebody that would be on the cross. In fact, um, Paul somewhat alluded to this over in 1 Corinthians 1.23 where he said, we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block. The events of the future events of this night would cause these men to rethink their association with Jesus, to rethink their allegiance to him. And before the night ended, Every one of these men would abandon Jesus out of fear for their own lives. We're here in chapter 14. Just glance down at verse 50. As the events play out, verse 50 tells us, And they all forsook him and fled. So we see here Jesus giving his men a prophecy of a fall. There's also a prophecy of fulfillment here. Jesus tells them that their failure would be the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. If you um, turn over to Zechariah 13, if you can find Zechariah, towards the end of the, New of the Old Testament, we find this prophecy that he quotes over here in Zechariah 13 and verse 7. Zechariah 13, 7 says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherds, speaking of Jesus, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts, smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hands upon the little ones. And so Jesus is telling them that there's been a prophecy, and the fulfillment of that prophecy is going to take place that night. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. Jesus was these men's shepherd. When he was taken away from them, they quickly lost their way. They wandered from the path of closeness and really strayed farther than in this moment they ever thought possible. Think about it. Peter, after these events, says, I go a-fishing. And he wasn't out sport fishing. That was Peter's background. That was Peter's livelihood and many of these other disciples. And I go a fishing, man, I'm done with this. I'm going back to what I was. I'm going back to what I knew. I go a fishing. The other thing we note here in these, ver in these verses is the omniscience of God. We serve a Savior who knows all things. 
The disciples surely thought that they were close to the Lord and secure from failing him. His words were designed to show them that he knew them far better than they knew themselves. It's kind of a scary thought. The same is true with us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what we are capable of, both in the work of the Lord for him and what we're capable of in our flesh. He knows the depths of sin that resides within our hearts. And sometimes we begin to to deceive ourselves that just because we're saved, we've reached a place where we are no longer tempted to fail. We sometimes seem to think that others may fail, but we will not. But thankfully, as the psalmist put it in Psalms 103, thankfully, God really knows who we are. The psalmist said, for he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. And thankfully, God knows deep down who I am and has um, the ability to have pity for me. Because the truth is, it's just the grace of God that we are not out of God's will at whatever moment in life. It's just the grace of God that I'm even here in church today. It's the grace of God that keeps me moment by moment if I am not in those moments when I am out of sin. And it's the grace of God that corrects me in those moments when I am in sin, but for the grace of God. Let's not miss this. God knows you better than you know yourself. He knows the problems that you battle in the flesh. He knows the potential that you have for sin. He knows the pull of temptation and evil. He knows the full possibilities that you have for sin in your life. And it's but by God's grace. Paul, with that thought in mind, told us in Romans 12 that we ought not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. So we see here some prophecies, a prophecy of a fall, a prophecy of fulfillment of Scripture. And next, we see some promises that are found in this passage. On the hills of this shocking prophecy, the Lord gives his men some precious promises. These men did not want to um, admit or not want to acknowledge and maybe didn't fully understand the Lord going to the cross. They were upset with what Christ had to say. But had they been able to and listen there was a message also in this that would have brought their hearts peace what he said to them next could have spoken peace to their worried hearts had they listened as far as promises here is we see a promise of resurrection there in verse 28 he tells them, but after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. After I am risen. It's not if or the possibility or this could happen, but he says as a surety, after I am risen. Jesus had just told his disciples that he was going to die on the cross. If we were to go back and read the context of the Lord's Supper, that's what he's trying to convey to them, that his body is going to be broken, his blood is going to be spilt. 
and his body about to be broken, his blood about to be shed, his face set to go to the cross. He promises them that I will rise. We're here in March. Just quickly flip over to chapter 10. Being startled or caught off guard of this talk of him giving his life. We see that throughout his ministry, he was trying to prepare them for this moment. Back in Mark 10, 45, he had told them, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. He's been trying to convey to his disciples that the whole purpose, the whole reason for coming has been so that he could die pay for man's sin dead, and rise again. Surely they are startled to hear that Jesus will die. But, the, but they could have been comforted by the promise that he will rise from the dead. The cross was not our Lord's final stop. He would die on the cross, pay for sin, satisfy the righteous demand of God towards sin. He would give his life, the innocent, for the guilty, so that lost sinners would have the opportunity to be saved by God's grace. Look over, look over in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul speaks to this in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. Kind of sums this whole thought up. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For he hath made him, context speaking of Jesus Christ there, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of of God in him. 1 Peter 3.18 puts it this way. It says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Jesus said, After I am risen. We see here a promise resurrection. We see here is a promise of restoration. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. I will go before you into Galilee. Jesus had just told these men that they were going to forsake him. He told them that they would be scandalized by him and they will leave him, even falling away from him for a time. I go a fish. However, his words here promises them restoration and forgiveness on the other side of failure. These men would fail God. And would fail him in a big way. Peter would deny him. All would forsake him. Yet Jesus would restore them and use them to literally turn the world upside down. And that's what we that's what we hear commentary of of the disciples in Acts 17. These men of whom the world is turned upside down. You know, I don't want to fail my Savior. He died for me, saved me when I called upon him by faith, has blessed me, has used me 
and done more for me than I think I can ever comprehend. His grace has been sufficient through every valley. While perhaps my love at times has wondered, his never has. His word has always proven to be true. He has given me everything, and I owe him absolute love and devotion in return. And I don't want to fail him. But the reality is that I know in the past I have. And if I live too much more into the future, it's likely to happen again. But what's comforting that after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. What's comforting is when I do, and he convicts me of my sin, and he chastens me, and of course he does that because he loves me, and he draws me back to him, that when I repent of my sin and return to him, he responds with complete forgiveness and restoration. This is what 1 John 1, 9 speaks about. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, now this does not mean that there's not some consequences to sin or that there's not some um, that goes on with disobedience. sin over your head as a person when I've done that and I come and confess my sin he's faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness and I can have a restored relationship with him but after I will go before you into Galilee so we see here a promise of a resurrection we see here a promise of restoration and then Next, we see some pronouncements. If you look there in verse 29, we see Peter's pronouncement of denial. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. When Peter hears the Lord's prophecy, he responds with a clear denial of the Lord's word. Peter said, these guys might, these guys might fall away, but I never will. You can't, maybe you can't depend or trust on them, but Lord, you can, you can trust me. I will never fail you. Lord, you can depend on me. Others might leave you, but I will always be there. And Peter, in that moment, probably believed every word he spoke. In that moment, he had no intentions of failing the Lord. He didn't leave his old life and his old career to come and be a failure. Instead, he had left all that determining to be a success in the service of the Lord. And so Peter denies here what the Lord's telling him. We see the Lord's response in verse 30 with a pronouncement of, or, or declaration back to Peter. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. See Jesus become very get very specific here with Peter. When Jesus hears what Peter has to say, he gets real personal. The Lord tells him that before the sun comes up in the morning, you will have denied me three times. And of course, you know the story. 
If you look at the end of chapter 14, pretty much the very last verse, 72, sums it up. He says, and the second time the cock crew, and Peter called to mind the words that Jesus said unto him, before the cock crowed twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. And when he thought thereon, he wept. So we see Jesus declare back to him. And then we see, again, Peter's response. And then Peter's response, we see a, a, a debate. We see a debate of attitude. Peter responds there in verse 31. He says, but he spake the more vehemently. If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise, also said they all. Peter's response here is kind of what we would call a typical Simon Peter response, knowing some of Peter's behavior. He refuses to listen to what the Lord is saying or conveying to him. And he reaffirms his promise to stand with the Lord. This time, Peter states that he is even willing to die for the Lord if it comes to that. We are told that this um, debate back to Jesus, that it's with, the verse tells us there that he spake the more, the more vehemently. That word more vehemently means out of measure or out of, it was out of proportion to the situation. And we kind of get the picture here that Peter's voice is a little animated. That his jaw is set. And that he's going to make his point back to the Lord. And of course, seeing that behavior, the other disciples join in with Peter. And they all voice their determination to stand with the Lord come what may. But regardless in that moment, what they believed in their hearts, the reality is by the end of the night, they would fail him because they had refused to heed his warning and to deal honestly with their flesh. Again, I think of Jeremiah 17.9 where Jeremiah tells us, for the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Here, the Lord is trying to convey to them what is going to happen, and their own hearts are deceiving them. 1 Corinthians 10.12 kind of also speaks to this, and it says, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth, take heed, lest he fall. And in those moments when I think I am strong, in those moments when I think I, I've got it all under control, are perhaps the most dangerous moments in life. Because before the night ends, as verse 50 told us, they would all abandon him. They would forsake him. Only two, Peter and John, would be there for some of the trial. And for his crucifixion, one of these one of these men would conceal his identity out of fear. The rest would be hiding until after his resurrection, until they see him in Galilee. Why did their walk with the Lord turn out this way? Why did over three years of intimate communion with Jesus end with them abandoning him? Why did they run away in fear that night? Well, there's probably multiple answers that we could give to those questions. But I think the reasons they failed him probably lie behind all of our failures. And we're going to just identify three or four things of why they may have failed him that night. But as we mention these things, let's 
take a moment to maybe shift off of examining the disciples to examine our own hearts about the things that may begin to take root in our own lives that lead or could lead to failure. A few reasons that might lead to failure. One of them could be pride. They never thought they could fail. They believed that they were above all of that. Proverbs 16, 18, a verse that we're all very familiar with, but tells us that pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. But usually one of the things that leads to failure have pride that I've allowed to creep in and begin to cause some rot. Psalms 10, 4, the psalmist told us, the wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. You see, pride begins to cause me to not seek God, to not depend upon God, but to rely on myself. What could have contributed to these men's failure this evening? Well, one of the things could have been pride. One of the things could have been self-deception. The disciples had convinced themselves that they loved Jesus more than anything in life. But they were about to find out that they still loved themselves more than they loved him heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Galatians 6.3. Um, actually, why don't you turn over there? Galatians 6.3. Kind of talking about self-deception and Galatians 6.3 tells us, For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. That when I begin to think that I have arrived, when I begin to think that I have achieved something, when outside of Christ I am nothing, I begin to deceive myself. And self-deception can lead to failure. The other thing that may have contributed to these men's failure and failure in our life could be fear. These men in this moment, they were confident that they would go with Jesus even to death. But they were about to be brought face to face with the risk of death and the power of fear. Fear has caused many of us to back away at times from our testimony. Fears caused times when, when we've been silent, when we should have spoken up. Fears sometimes caused us to fall in with the crowd instead of taking the stand with the Lord. Fears magnified the power of Satan and minimized the power of God. And we should never underestimate the power of fear. Fear does not come from God. 2 Timothy 1.7 tells us, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. We should not fear people. We should not fear Satan or demons. But there is one thing that we should fear. Matthew, Matthew 10 points this out. If you flip over to Matthew 10. Matthew 10 and verse 28 tells us what we should not fear, but where we should place healthy fear. And fear not them, Matthew 10, 28, and fear not them which kill the body, 
but are not able to kill the soul. So shouldn't be as fearful about physical death, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him that is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. When I begin to be fearful about events around me and take my eyes off of God, or if I'm a lost man and when I am more fearful about what others may think or more fearful about um, what people's perception of my, me may be or fearful about different things, and I'm not fearful about where I stand before God, my fear is misplaced. And fear misplaced can lead to failure. And so perhaps it was fear that contributed to this men's to these men's failure. As we kind of begin to pull this together, we've talked about prophecy that's in this scripture. There's a prophecy of a fall. All shall be offended. We looked at some promises in this scripture that after I am risen, the promise of a resurrection, disciples, he was trying to get them to look future tense to that, and we look back in, back in time to that, but Christ has risen, and there's a promise of salvation through Christ's resurrection. We found in this passage uh, a promise of restoration, that when we failed and we confess our sin and return back to God, that there can be forgiveness and restoration. We found pronouncements that we can be in denial, that we can even debate back with God. And so as we conclude or as we wrap this up, the challenge is never say never. Maybe there are people here today who never thought in their Christian life that they would be living the life they're living today. Maybe when you were saved, or when you were saved, you promised the Lord that you would live for him, that you would be faithful to him, faithful to his house, faithful to his word, but somehow some of that slipped. And you find yourself in a position where perhaps in your past you would have said, I'll never do that. I think a good way to judge that is if we were to ask ourselves the question, has there ever been a time when I've been closer to the Lord than now? That'd be a good measuring stick for if things have begun to slip. Others may be here today and maybe have begun to flirt with things that are dangerous and uh, have begun to allow some slippage and the end of that route, the end of that is trouble and ruin. And maybe you need to come back to your Heavenly Father today and ask Him to help you stay close, to not be reliant upon your own heart. Maybe others to here today have witnessed the fall and failures of believers around them and said, I would never do that as you look down your nose at them. If you have that attitude, you need to be careful. To hold someone's past over their head just because they did something you have not done yet can lead to failure in your own life. This is what Paul was talking about in Galatians 6.1. He said, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one 
in a spirit of meekness. And then as he wraps that up, he gives this warning. He says, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Maybe there's others here today that have never been saved. They've never personalized the fact that Jesus went to the cross, suffered the anguish of the cross and rose again because of their very sins. And Jesus died on the cross as a way of salvation to whosoever will trust in him. And so maybe today you need to do business with the risen Savior who has the ability to cleanse and save you from your sins if you will but repent. I don't know how the Lord has maybe taken this and applied it to your life, but as we bow and pray here, my prayer is that you would take what's been presented from the Word of God today and that you would do business with God. Let's pray. Father God, we bow before you here at the close of this. We're thankful today for the word of God. Father, we're thankful today that we can hold it in our hands. We're thankful that the spirit of God can take the principles of the word of God and apply them to our lives. Father, we pray today for a lost soul that may be here has never put his trust in the resurrected Lord. Father, we pray that today they might do business with you. Father, we don't know how you might have applied this to individuals' lives. But Father, as your spirit works this morning, you know that the thing that can hinder it is the will of men. And we just pray that the will of men might surrender to you. We ask these things in your name, Jesus' name, amen.